Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to HPI. I am Dr. Cody Jackson, and I'll be your navigator through today's journey of history of present interview. Wilma's series at the crossroads where the interests of the people meet the people of interest. Wilma is the Western Regional Component of the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine. Wilma podcasts are a benefit for Wilma members to stay current on topics of interest to occupational and environmental medicine physicians and allies. The Wilma Education Committee members involved in planning this presentation and Dr. Sandrock have no relevant financial relationships to disclose and have no conflicts of interest. On today's podcast, we'll discuss updates to the COVID-19 pandemic and its interaction with public health with Dr. Christian Sandrock, an internist who specializes in critical care, infectious disease, and pulmonary disease. Welcome to the show, Christian. Thank you. Hope you're doing well, Dr. Jackson. Yes, I'm doing well. Thank you. You can call me Cody. That's quite all right. <laughs> <laughs> Old school training on the East Coast. <laughs> Christian, uh, COVID is such a heavy topic and, and quite depressing, to be honest. Uh, it's getting better. Uh, so given the enormous negativity in the world, I'd like to have both of us share something positive in our lives uh, for our listeners. I'll kick it off and uh, give thanks that neither me nor anyone in my family has been affected by COVID, at least not yet and uh, that we are all fortunate enough to have been vaccinated, um, which of course helps lower our stress and anxiety levels and uh, allow us a much more freedoms, uh, especially with traveling. How about yourself? I will think of something semi-immediate, which is kind of, uh, I think it's positive. <laughs> I was rushing between a bunch of meetings yesterday and patient care. So uh, I came back from, uh, I went, went to the hospital to a public health meeting and was zipping back to see a patient and I realized I had uh, my old truck and not my regular car because my daughter had my regular car and unfortunately that had my parking pass and the access to the parking garage at work. So I parked um, illegally and ran in, did my procedure and just accepted the fact that I would get a parking ticket and forgot about the car and came out four hours later and I did not have a parking ticket. So um, I would like to say that that's at least a positive win for that day. That was yesterday. So um, I'll start with that one. <laughs> Yes, I, I would think so. I think that's very uh, positive also that, you know, your, your patient, that the sacrifice that you made for your, your patient, you know, like going above and beyond. So I'm sure they were very grateful for that. Uh, so Christian, the, the hot topic floating around, or at least one of them, is this Delta variant and more recently the Mu variant for COVID. Um, are there any others out there? And uh, can you talk about these different variants and how they affect us? Yeah, that's, um, you know, it's interesting stuff. Um, and the funny thing is, we tend to make a little bit more out of the variants than is probably needed. Um, and I'll probably explain that a little bit more. But one of the things that's been, um, you know, interesting is obviously the Delta variant's gotten a lot of press, but these variants um, used to have names and codes behind them. Right. And you probably remember the alpha variant, which is the original one, is actually the UK variant, you know, the B1117. Um, the beta variant was what was called the South African variant at, um, you know, B, I think it's 351, uh, 351, which I can never remember always the numbers. 
All right, we won't hold you to it. <laughs> exactly. And um, the Delta variant is another uh, B variant. And really, these are just expressions of, um, you know, like most viruses, they undergo changes. In this case, it's against the spike protein. Um, what we're most used to probably and the closest would be the hemagglutinin for influenza. And they undergo changes that and these mutations where they vary just enough. Now, those variations may or may not result in different changes, both from a transmissibility standpoint and an outcome standpoint. What we do know is that, um, and the, you know, the CDC uh, follows this uh, very closely. You know, we, from a clinical standpoint, we don't really ever get to know whether something's a Delta variant or not, for example. Uh, but they do surveys at a number of Sentinel sites. They've done this with influenza for years, where there's Sentinel physicians. They have a number of um, what they call global surveillance sites both in the U.S. and outside of the U.S., where they actually determine which variants currently exist um, and what are predominating in the community. And then that's fed back to us. So number one, we get to know the variants that are available. Number two, this allows us to probably cohort and evaluate some of these variants as far as outcome. Now, what we have seen is obviously the alpha variant is the mainstay that we um, really predominantly saw early on in the pandemic or close cousins of that alpha variant. That's what many of these vaccines are based off of. And as um, you know, the virus replicates and mutates these newer variants and these different changes with usually deletions or insertions in the genome for the spike protein present, some of them really don't do much and they die off and they're not very competitive. Some of them are extremely competitive like the Delta variant. So there is a mu and a lambda variant. There is um, an eta variant. All of them have really never taken off and had a foothold like the Delta variant. So the Delta variant, at least we think originated in India. Um, that's where it was first detected. That has really taken a worldwide stronghold. And if you look at the current variants we're seeing in the US, 99.3 to 99.5% of them are the Delta variant. So that has become really the most fit wild type virus we see. And that's come with a number of different um, outcomes associated with it. So we certainly know that um, you know, it appears transmissibility is higher. It appears that outcomes may be worse depending on what study you look at. So certainly rate of hospitalization is worse. Um, some studies are conflicting about whether um, it's more lethal. But at least for now, it looks like, you know, that, that it's certainly increased rates of hospitalization. And then what probably disturbs people more is that we're seeing more, slightly more vaccine failures. It depends what you define as a failure. But as far as at acquiring disease, um, you know, certainly the main mRNA and, and adenovirus-based vaccines don't have as much activity against the Delta variant. Um, so increased transmissibility, slightly worse outcomes, particularly in, in immunocompromised individuals, and then at least some um, decreased efficacy of the vaccine seen with those. Really now worldwide, while we find other variants and mutations, the CDC does classify them as like a known variant, a variant of concern, a variant of critical, critical um, importance. And that way they can rank them like, hey, this variant might mean something or, hey, we found these mutations, but we don't think it's actually going to drive predominance of the virus that we see in the community. So right now the Delta is boss um, and king, and we're sort of seeing that play a role. We really haven't seen these other, these other um, variants really create a stronghold thus far since, since the Delta has been present. Right. It, it almost seems like the, it's kind of like whack-a-mole where we're, we're trying to get down one variant and then another one one pops up. And I, I guess that goes with Darwin's survival of the fittest, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there's almost like, you know, you have a prize fighter and, you know, one is currently the heavyweight champion and you'll see, you know, contenders rise up and they may matter and they may not. And that's part of what we try and figure out. Um, what I think is a given is 
by you know reducing the viral burden of disease in society, i.e. through vaccination and other measures to prevent spread, you're less likely to have these mutations flourish and you're less likely to have a fit virus come out the back end. So that part is relatively clear. So, you know, if, and I, you know, I live in California, so this is never a great analogy, but if something, you know, is a wildfire and you bring it, you know, you bring wonderful winds to the wildfire, you have a problem and having a real ripe, naive um, population that's not protected, has no herd immunity, is not vaccinated, doesn't have resources, is where this becomes a real problem. So similarly, do you feel that, that this virus will be endemic and that the rate of change will depend on how many people are becoming reinfected or infected so that it gets the opportunity to adjust or, or change? Yeah, that's, that's kind of the million dollar question is looking ahead in the future, you know, when this pandemic ends, which it's never going to be like a sudden ending, it's going to sort of whimper off. And um, at some point, this virus will certainly become, I think, a little endemic, but its course is going to be a little bit more variable. Um, I think, you know, will you see alpha and beta coronaviruses circulate yearly? We know that they're part of the larger cold and flu breakdown of viruses, but they're maybe not as relevant or prominent as some others like, you know, RSV or, or rhinovirus. But now as we sort of see SARS-CoV-2, there eventually may be a level of immunity where we then see it mutate over time like the influenza virus does, where it can then cause some seasonal disease and maybe you know some secondary infections, but they're much more mild and they're more cold and flu-like. That's probably the most likely scenario. So this will become just an endemic virus that causes more minimal disease, unless you end up getting you know an infection in a immunocompromised or profoundly naive person, and then we may see you know severe illness sporadically. That's probably the most likely. There always is a chance that the virus will then be outcompeted, you know, in Darwin's sort of survival of fittest theory by another virus that may or may not be a coronavirus, probably not. And then its ability to sort of fight amongst influenza, RSV, rhinovirus, and so forth diminishes that it sort of falls out of circulation. That's certainly another possibility as well, but always hard to predict which it's, which it's going to be. Um, I'd like to think it falls out of circulation, but I think we're going to at least see it for the next couple of years falling into an endemic um, process. So. Perfect. We appreciate your uh, look into the future. I think that helps a lot of us prepare <laughs> and also provide uh, guidance to our, our patients as well. So continuing on, switching gears just a little bit from immunizations to, to testing, what role does testing have at this point in time in, in the pandemic? Yeah, and I, I assume you mean PCR nasal swab testing versus variant typing um, or strain typing, you know, certainly. That, that was going to be my, my follow-on question to see if our, our providers have access to find out the strains that our, our patients have. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So do they have access? Actually, not really. So, but what you can do is you can go to the CDC website. Sometimes your state and or county might link to their own data and you can sort of see what's circulating in your community. We did. So for example, here at UC Davis, I know when we had some cases among our employees, particularly last, um, you know, in the summer of 2021, when we started seeing some breakthrough infections, you know, we knew Delta was sort of taking a foothold. Um, some of those samples were sent, you know, to our uh, county public health, who they were then able to actually evaluate those and say, yeah, these look like they're Delta. But we knew that was largely circulating in the community. So for most of us, we're able to just sort of look and say, okay, Delta's making up 99% of the cases we see. If we're going to see a case, it's probably Delta. In general, the answer is no. However, if you have something that's very unusual, 
um, you probably could work with your local health department and say, hey, I have this finding that is so different. And I've now had, you know, especially if you have more than one case and they're, they're acting with such variation, I'm wondering if we can actually, you know, strain type this and find out its value. So I think that's definitely one importance. Um, you know, the other thing, which I think, you know, you're bringing up is this whole idea of PCR testing and, um, you know, the value of testing now in a pandemic. And, you know, it's interesting from a public health perspective, you know, we haven't done a ton of testing, for example, if we take influenza, where, um, you know, we do testing, we obviously find out it's influenza, we do strain type it and find out if it's flu A or flu B. But once it's sort of in the community, and we have the flu season starting, we actually can use influenza like illness reporting as a um, measure. And I think um, that's always the hard, a great question, because if we have limited resources for testing, and you know now, uh, for example, our testing shifts away from um, active testing for symptomatic individuals, but now more for um, testing for unvaccinated individuals, which we're going to need for the workplace, resources become limited. So you know maybe at that point, if someone has a classic clinical finding of COVID, is it really worth testing them? And I think that's always a great question. We are generally doing it now to have it documented have it in the system. I do know that many places, for example, um, when they see a patient um, in, that has, you know, um, post-COVID syndrome or what we would call long COVID, they want proof that they actually had an infection. Um, so we're still kind of doing a lot of testing, but I think in some scenarios, you probably could pull away from that. Um, certainly, many of us are not testing our pre-surgical or pre-procedure patients. If they're vaccinated and they have no symptoms, we actually don't test them prior to procedures and follow, um, you know, the CDC guidance on that. So you sort of raise a good question. I think we still tend to test everybody now, but there's definitely pockets where I think this can be weaned off. Um, and then strain typing, that's always a little bit harder to do unless there's some real reason. Public health will pretty much just rely on whatever the surveillance um, Sentinel uh, sites are reporting. Awesome. Thank you so much for, for that answer. Uh, I think that's very helpful for our audience. Two follow-on questions for that, just briefly. When you, when you stated unusual symptoms, initially when COVID broke out, we learned of lack of taste and, and smell as unusual. I would classify that. Are, are there any other symptoms that you could foresee in the future that uh, an attuned Ahmed doc might be able to raise their, their eyebrows or ears to, to kind of hint them that this might be something new? That's a great question, actually. We've gotten used to, you know, la you know anosmia or, you know, lack of smell or lack of taste. Um, obviously, you know, what we call COVID toes, some of the microvascular and uh, flow related issues. Um, certainly clotting that we've seen. Um, so these are things that are not normal and not what we're used to seeing. I don't know of anything that might stand out in the acute phase of the disease that's otherwise new or different. Um, so I think that would be, um, that's going to be sort of interesting to see if there's anything that is sort of new. And that may be, you know, if we just have some symptoms that pop up that are mixed with classic COVID. So, hey, I lost my taste of, you know, taste of, uh, you know, or my sense of smell, my sense of taste, but I'm also having these symptoms, which are really haven't been reported. And now we have a few cases. That's where sometimes testing is going to be helpful, but I wish I had a good example of what that might be. Unfortunately, we've seen so much COVID now. I think we've covered most of our bases, but uh, you know, that's, that's one time we often will strain type or strain test to see like when something new or different pops up. There you have it listeners. If you have a, a new finding for your COVID patients, email us at woma at woma.org. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs> 
Um, and then briefly, Christian, um, I think you mentioned long COVID or post-COVID syndrome. Could you just briefly touch on that to explain to our listeners what that might entail and how it might affect return to work? I think you briefly touched on that, having the employer insurance require a, a test for this. Yeah. And, you know, so the technical term is PASC, P-A-S-C, so post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2 infection. That's the long term. Um, the, the layman's term, which is really taken on with everybody, is this ideal of co- you know long COVID or COVID long haulers. And really that, um, you know, the definition has not been settled, but it's about 60 days after acute infection that you have, you know, ongoing sequelae or symptoms that have, neither, that have not resolved or have presented themselves 60 days afterwards. The key is that at that time, you're generally PCR negative and you're not acutely infectious, but you have those ongoing symptoms. Um, the classic things, you know, we sort of hear of besides loss of smell and taste, which is persistent, is things such as brain fog, hair loss, loss of teeth, a lot of different skin lesions. The most common complaint is actually fatigue and lethargy. Some people have chest pain and shortness of breath. So these are the things that kind of fall in that category. And when we see people in our clinic, we have a lot of people who complain of it. I mean, I'll be honest with you, you know, the the first three symptoms on there, when you hear it, I'm like, well, crap, this is me, Um, you know, because I'm so tired from working, but (laughs) I know, I I know, I, I know that's not me, right? So, you know, to have some positive test where you can go back and say, okay, this is persistent and temporally related allows us to at least say, okay, our patient falls into this broad category. And, you know, the hard part is a lot of people early on in the pandemic didn't get testing because we didn't have resources. And, you know, but at the same time, there were other viruses circulating. So whether they really had COVID or not, very hard to explain. Now antibody testing might or might not be valuable to them because they actually could have had COVID and not have detectable antibodies six or eight months out. Um, from their original illness. So that's why it's nice in the acute phase to have a positive PCR and link that because our testing is not perfectly reliable, but many, because there is a big overlap with a lot of um, psychological and other physical illnesses to really say someone has a post-COVID syndrome, you ha- kind of like to have that testing available. So that's sort of what we what we do here. And we really try and test all of our, our, our um, employees in that regard. So um, it just is a nice documentation, but again, you know, if you lose your sense of smell, you kind of know you have COVID. That's how my wife figured it out when we had a breakthrough infection. She knew immediately, hey, I lost my sense of smell. I have COVID. Um, and, you know, we still got tested and documented and to have that time, you know, associated with our employer. But we didn't really need the test to make any grand diagnosis. Thank you so much, Christian, for the great synopsis of long COVID. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Christian. It's been a pleasure getting to know your HPI. Until next time, everyone, please stay safe, stay healthy.